Behold our God seated on a throne. I've been meditating this week on a passage out of 2 Corinthians 4 that says, though our outer body is decaying. Paul says that because he's saying we live in this world, in the wilderness, a world that is defined by the spirit of this age. You know, the Bible defines history as this age and the age to come. This age is one of rebellion from God, and as a result, there's decay and there's wasting away. But he says, though our body be be wasting away, inwardly, our spirit is being renewed day by day. And if you ask the question, how is it being renewed day by day? It's in very ordinary ways. Behold our God seated on a throne who gives us his word, who gives us prayer as a means of connecting with him, who gives us one another, who nourishes and nurtures and feeds us in the sacrament. Behold our God who's so committed to our well-being that even though we're in this world living in this age, we're living with the means of the age to come and the power of the age to come. So as we approach and turn to his word, now I want you to picture this. This is reality. This is what we're tasting Jesus Christ, the risen, ascended, glorified Lord, is seated on his throne, and he is interested, and he's feeding, and he's nourishing you. So what do you think our disposition and our frame should be as we hear his word? I don't know about you, but my outer body is decaying to such a degree. I come like a famished animal to his word. I don't know if you've ever seen a five-foot-three person famished. I don't, it's not always a pretty sight. But what is your frame, your disposition, as you approach the Word? Now let's pray and ask the Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts. Father, the very first thing I think about when I think of that verse and I coming before you is I don't have a clue what your love really feels like. Because I define love one way. I define love so often if you loved me, X, Y, Z, this. And yet here is the tastes and the picture and the demonstration and the tangible reality of love, that you are present in your word, and you're feeding us with your word, and you are nourishing and sustaining and encouraging and challenging and comforting and becoming real to us in and through your word. So I know I need to come and ask you to change me as I approach your word, that I would decrease, that Jesus would increase and increase and increase. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, illumine our minds and our hearts, change our dispositions, that we don't just take this as an academic information, but we take this as your very word to nourish our very souls, because we are like the deer, panting for streams of water, thirsty for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask you if you are able to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. As you know, between now and Easter, we're looking at these very, what I call them, snapshots or portraits of Jesus, a way to encounter Jesus. We encountered him in the wilderness last week. This morning we're looking and we're going to encounter him as he is revealing himself to his disciples in glory. Passage commonly known as the Transfiguration from Luke chapter 9. Verses 28 to 36. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, 
two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord who, out of his love, has given his word to you. You may be seated. All right, I have a silly question for you, and I think I know the answer. At least I hope I know the answer. How many of us enjoy going to the movies? Not many. More? Come on, be honest. You're allowed. This is the participatory part of the, of the sermon, by the way, okay? The other parts, yes, you sit quiet. But do we enjoy seeing the movies? I know I do. Evie and I don't get to go all that often. We were thrilled when we got a couple of gift certificates to go to the theater. We're looking forward to choose just the right movie. And I have a confession to make. I like the previews. I don't know if you all like the previews or not, but I love the previews. Last movie we saw in the theater was Green Book, and I'm like, we have to get there 15 minutes early, and not just for the popcorn. I've got to see what's coming out in the summer, what's coming out next Christmas time. I'm so ridiculous when it comes to previews. You all know I'm a lover of sports. So on the TV, this, by the way, is the perfect storm of the sports year for me. Because as much as I love sports all year round, March and April, there are three things that are happening that I love. Baseball season begins in 10 days. Believe me, I'm counting down hours and minutes. March Madness begins this week. And then the greatest golf tournament of all, the Masters, is in a couple of weeks in Augusta, Georgia. It is a nor'easter coming together in terms of that. And I start in January with the TV, and I listen to that guy with the voice, I don't even know who he is, who kind of goes, a tradition unlike any other. <laughs> and my heartbeat starts to begin to race. I sit there and go, yes, a tradition unlike any other, the masters. Now, why is it that previews do that? They get us to anticipate. They cultivate hope. Because friends in a world, and this is why I was meditating on 2 Corinthians 4 and quoting this and thinking about this week. We live in a world that is chaotic. We live in a world, this is why the New Testament writers describe the world as a wilderness journey, a desert that is a place of nothingness, a place of aridness, a place of hopelessness. And what will sustain us? What will get us to endure? What will encourage us? What will get us to persevere? A living, present active, real hope. Not just a pie-in-the-sky hope that says, oh, I'm going to Publix this afternoon. I hope I get a good parking spot. <laughs> but a real hope that will give you courage as you, we sang in one of the praise songs, on the road marked with suffering. 
You need a hope to cultivate, to sustain you. Now, I want you to think about the context of Luke's gospel. Luke has just shared with his disciples. This was earlier on. This is before the transfiguration. He's just told them, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And fellas, here's what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders of the law, the Jewish leadership. And they're going to mock me, and they're going to shame me, and they're going to spit upon me, and they're going to reject me, and they're going to kill me. And then I'll be raised again from the dead. And then he says, if anyone would follow me, I don't know about you, but I'm going, really, follow there? Again, does it sound, does it, I said this earlier, does it sound like he's going, if anyone would accept me into their heart, do you think maybe we should be changing our evangelistic techniques a little bit? If anyone would follow me, and yes, where I'm going is Jerusalem, and the end of chapter 9, it says he sets his face like flint. In other words, determinedly, doggedly, you can't take me away from this. Like flint towards Jerusalem, where I'm going to die. And if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For he who would save his life, so in other words, live for your own comfort, and yeah, you get to taste the pleasures of sin for a period of time, The chicken wings taste awesome right now, but you'll lose your life, and he who loses his life for my sake gets freedom and gets liberation and gets love and gets meaning and gets what he calls real life. Now, if you hear that call, if you listen to what Jesus is saying, and part of the text we read, and I'm going to get this, is when the cloud comes, what does the Father say? Listen to him. See, I wonder if we listen to him or if we listen to American evangelicalism. I wonder if we listen to him or do we listen to the American church that's a mile wide and about an inch deep. If we listen to him, then hope is not an optional... Isn't it nice I have hope? Hope becomes a living reality that if you don't have, you will die. And what does Jesus give them? The transfiguration. Jesus pulls back the curtain on heaven, pulls back the curtain on their future, pulls back the curtain on glory itself, because they need hope. And whether you and I recognize it or not, and we only recognize it to the degree that we taste and we feel and we're willing to embrace our sufferings. So many of us live in denial But to the degree that you embrace and feel and enter into and refuse to deny your sufferings, to that degree, you need hope. I have good news for you. Peel back the curtain. Let's take a look. Two ways this text will be explained, and I'll unveil it to you. The revelation of glory and the explanation of glory. Look at the text. Now, about eight days after these sayings, and these sayings, I've already got, these sayings are things like, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to be rejected, and if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow after me, lose his life. So eight days, can you imagine what they were thinking for these eight days? Eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain. I want you to, I want you to think also as we go through all of these allusions to the Exodus, because Jesus here is accomplishing and fulfilling and preparing for the new, the greater, the second Exodus. So he went up on a mountain. Sounds like Mount Sinai, right? 
Literally, it's Mount Hermon, but here he is. Sounds like Mount, Mount Sinai. And he goes on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Departure is literally the Greek word for exodus. So on the mountain, here is Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about the fulfillment from what Moses and Elijah did, the greater exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. That to me is amazing. Here they are, the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're sleeping. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Writer says of the Transfiguration, the Transfiguration is a dramatic indication of the resplendent glory which belongs to Jesus as God's unique son. As a revelation of the concealed splendor of the Son of Man, the event points forward to Jesus' status as the eschatological judge who will be manifested to the whole world. The episode provides a personal and preliminary revelation that he whom the disciples follow on a way marked by suffering and humiliation is, in fact, the Son of Man whose total ministry has cosmic implications. Jesus is pulling back the curtain and showing them what was prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Daniel. Remember, Daniel had the vision at night. Daniel chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is showing Peter and James and John a picture of that everlasting dominion, that resplendent glory. Now commentators give the insight that the transfiguration functions in the gospel here, much like the end of Isaiah 52 functions in relation to Isaiah 53. In other words, Isaiah 52 is kind of a prelude to Isaiah 53, just like the sayings Jesus said about his going to Jerusalem to die and self-denial are a prelude to the transfiguration. Here's what they mean. The end of Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, says the following. Isaiah says, Behold my servant. So he's presenting the suffering servant. He's prophesying about Jesus. Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So here's his glory. Let me give you this picture of transfigured glory. But then he says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Glory and suffering, right? Glory promised 
Why? Because of the suffering to follow. Look at Isaiah 53. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, you have an outline of the gospel here. You have the mission of Jesus the King. What Jesus came to accomplish and do. His vocation, which Luke describes, interestingly enough, I'll mention this again, verses 30 and 31, as his exodus, his departure, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem. Remember what we see Jesus do in Jerusalem. He will die on a cross for the sins of the people. Now, in a very human sense, Don't think Jesus as God here. Think Jesus as human. What does death do? Death creates loss. Death creates despair. Death creates disillusionment. Death creates disappointment. Death creates confusion. And so the transfiguration functions to give the disciples hope as this mission. Remember the end of chapter Luke. End of chapter 9 here in Luke, Luke is saying, Jesus set his face like flint to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' mission. He will not be deterred. What is he giving his disciples? He's giving them hope for the mission. He's giving them the hope of glory. Friends, do we understand how much we need practically the hope of glory to face our present life? I'm not sure we do because we have everything in America. We are blessed. I've got four gazillion channels on my TV. If I don't find a tradition unlike any other on one, I guarantee you I'll find it on You've never seen how determined I can be to find the masters. We have everything. And do you understand what that can do to your soul? Do you understand what that can do to you spiritually? That that can diminish your awareness of your need for hope. It diminishes your spirituality, your thirst for God. C.S. Lewis said, speaking of the hope of heaven, listen to these words. He said of our future, of eternity, he said, heaven once attained, will work backwards and turn even agony into a glory. I'm afraid I have to ponder and contemplate and and read on that about a million times to begin to kind of understand. But it's a little bit like Jesus in the upper room after he was resurrected, when Thomas was doubting who he was. What did Jesus say? He said, Thomas, put your finger right here. The holes in my hands... And in a sense, he's saying, your agony, what is the deepest agony of your life? What is the deepest loss in your life? What is the deepest pain? Here's your future. I am about to turn it into resurrected glory. And if you suffer, friends, that is good news. And what does it mean practically? Dan Allender said this. He said, biblical hope is substantial faith regarding the future. 
Hope is the dream of shalom, the anticipation of joy that comes through us and prompts us to rise and rebuild, to envision and risk for what is not yet. Hope takes the experience of loss. I hope you're listening to these words. That means hope is not idealistic. Hope is fundamentally and utterly realistic. And it takes the experience of loss and uses it as raw material for writing a new and unexpected story. A new and unexpected story of faith, of hope, and of love. Jesus is showing them. He's revealing to them the future. He's saying, you know, look at the description of the transfiguration, the brightness, the purity, the radiance, the beauty of the glory of Jesus. Jesus wants to bring them into an experience of the anticipation of the future, that they can taste the future. Why? So they can, as Allender says, envision and risk for what is not yet to write a new and unexpected story. Picture a story like Peter preaching his sermon at Pentecost after the Spirit is poured out on him. Like reconciliation in the church that's signaled when Cornelius comes into the body. Picture a new and unexpected story that's fueled by hope. And of course, they don't understand it yet. But yet, this is what Jesus promises them. So that's okay. That's the revelation of glory. Now look with me next at the explanation of glory. It says, as Jesus was saying these things, a cloud, and notice the details, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Now, friends, in the gospel, this is the second time that a voice from heaven has been heard giving approval and affirmation of Jesus. The first was Jesus' baptism, the voice coming from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And now, this time, the text tells us that a cloud overshadowed them. This is not an insignificant detail. The fact that the voice comes from a cloud is extremely significant because this is a clear allusion to the glory cloud from the Exodus. Exodus chapter 24, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered or overshadowed the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. On Mount Sinai, God came down revealed his presence, revealed and unveiled his beauty and his glory in a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. And the cloud is God's tabernacle, the pavilion which both reveals and conceals his glory. And as one commentator put it, in a head-snapping twist, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus himself produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates directly from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah, Moses, and every other prophet has done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. So it is on this wilderness mountain that the Father gives his approval and his affirmation, his encouragement to Jesus, his Son, this is my beloved son, my anointed, my chosen one. 
Listen to him because he is now headed to Jerusalem to accomplish the exodus, to accomplish his departure, your liberation from Egypt, your liberation from sin and death and hell and the devil. And in his humanness, even Jesus needs encouragement from Moses and Elijah. Even Jesus in his humanness, the human Jesus is receiving, he's conversing, he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And what are they doing? They're fellowshipping in God because God gives his approval. Now friends, what do we do with all of this? How do we apply this? The first thing to recognize is the Father's explanation of this. What does the Father say? The explanation of glory. He says, listen to him. See, the transfiguration is a preview of glory which speaks to the necessity, along with the affirmation from the Father, of the Son's mission to restore the world through his death, resurrection, and subsequent ascension into glory. This affirmation from the Father, which he also received at his baptism, is that which prepares and fortifies him for his mission. We need encouragement and hope to prepare and fortify us for what God calls us to. Jesus has the mission that's laying before him. And what does the Father give him? Encouragement. You are my chosen one. You are my anointed. You are my beloved. Do you hear the words of affirmation and pride bubbling over in there? Do you hear the Father saying of the Son... In one sense, it's saying, that's my boy. I'm proud of him. I have to tell this story. Joel's not here. I can tell it, I think, on him. I don't think he'll listen to the internet on, on this. But I used to embarrass his socks off when I would go to his Little League games or his basketball games because there he would be, age six, seven, eight years old, playing basketball, and I would be in the crowd standing up going, that's my boy, did you see that one? That's mine, that's not yours, that's my boy right there. Because that was my, and it didn't matter what he did, he could have fouled three people, who cares? <laughs> the bottom line is, and don't misinterpret me, don't mishear me. I'm going to say something that's going to sound provocative to you, but I'm revealing a very important principle, and I don't want you to misunderstand me. As important as biblical principles are, they're important. You hear me saying that? Biblical principles are important. As important as accountability is. You hear me saying that? Accountability is important. Okay? Don't anybody say I didn't say it was important. Those things do not work by themselves. They only work in the context and the setting of utter safety and approval, encouragement and hope. Within the context of safety, accountability is a beautiful thing. But if you don't feel affirmed and safe, all they'll do is crush you. The Father is affirming the Son here. There are human lessons in that for us. The Father is giving encouragement because He is sending the Son on a mission to die. He is sending the Son on a mission of utter rejection and shame and cruelty and mocking. And He's fortifying Him for that. 
I love how Tim Keller puts it when he asks, have you ever had that kind of experience? When the compassion and love of another person helped you deal with your suffering. When someone's unconditional approval and encouragement transformed your fear into resolve. When an encounter with beauty seemed to neutralize your anxiety and give you hope. And if you got that kind of help more often, here in that a picture of the church and its fellowship. If that's what we gave each other, wouldn't you be different? Wouldn't trouble make you wiser, deeper, and stronger instead of bitter and hard and joyless? And so here is the question. How are you going to get more of that kind of approval, that kind of encouragement, that kind of love? The answer is hope, a living, powerful Hope. See, we need to embrace and cultivate what Jesus has done for you. You need to learn to have Jesus on the cross. Your sin being absorbed into him, his righteousness being credited to you, you need to know the implications of that in a deeper way. What does it mean that Jesus counts you as righteous? Do you ask yourself that question? What are the implications that Jesus looks at me from the cross, and he says, you are my beloved son or daughter. With you I am well pleased. I accept you. I approve of you. It is only to the degree that the grace of God goes deeply within us that we will be different, that we will be able to offer empathy and understanding and compassion and listening to others. The kind of encouragement the Father offered to the Son and gave Peter and James and John a glimpse and then said to them, listen to him. So who are you listening to? Do we listen to him or do we listen to ourselves? Do we listen to him or do we listen to what other people say? Do we listen to him or do we listen to that little voice in our head? See, I know that voice all too well. That voice that I'll pull out of the parking lot and that voice will start, oh, that sermon was a dog. I know that voice very, very well. Whose voice are you listening to and learning to cultivate? And friends, do we at all have a vision that we're helping one another listen to the voice of Jesus through his word? That that's what we're here for. We are here to help one another, encourage one another, listen to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for giving us this preview of glory. This preview that Jesus died for us, was raised for us, that he is ascended for us, that he tabernacles. The glory cloud lives amongst us, that this glory is for us. The favor of God rests upon us. Oh, that through ordinary means of grace, word and sacrament, fellowship and prayer, we would cultivate this, to experience it, to sense it, to have become real what we already know, what we already believe. Oh, that it would become more and more real to us each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.